Um, welcome all to this panel on what would happen if Bernie won, a question I'm sure most people in this room have been thinking a lot about for the last couple of years. Um, so I won't belabor this introduction too much. I just want to say I'm very happy that this debate is happening at this conference, um, that there's a space for a variety of perspectives on this question that takes seriously both the rise of the socialist left in this country and the crises and social movements that preceded it as well as the global context um, of the rise of the right and the failure of center-left parties um, and inter-imperial rivalries. Um, so without further ado, I'm going to introduce our panelists. Megan Day is a staff writer at Jacobin and a member of DSA. Um, Kate Joel Griffiths is an anthropologist, writer, and teacher in Brooklyn. They've conducted ethnographic research on work and strike action in South Africa and West Virginia. Their work appears in The Nation, Viewpoint, The Verso Blog, and Bicultural Anthropology. They're a member of Red Bloom and a delegate to the Marxist Center. And they're also a member of the PSC at CUNY and of Fordham Faculty United. And Antina Vagonzas is a PhD candidate at, in sociology at NYU. Um, they're currently studying the logistics labor process with the support of the Center for Engaged Scholarship. They're a member of DSA, Red Bloom, and Academic Workers for a Democratic Union and a rank and file movement in the UAW. Um, <laughs> But um, they're each going to do their remarks and then respond to each other, and then I'll open it up um, for questions and discussion from the floor. Um, so, Megan. Yeah. Hello, everyone. Uh, first of all, I'm so glad to see all of you here. There are a lot of people in this room, which is very exciting. It also makes the room very hot. So, good luck <laughs> to all of us. Um, and I also want to say how exciting it is that we've come from Bernie would have won to what would happen if Bernie won, right? Like I think that as the left, we are taking this question very seriously because it's actually possible in a way that it, it wasn't last time. And so we have to be thinking really critically about what we're going to do to respond to changing circumstances. Um, I'm just going to basically give you my case for why. It's not, it addresses what would happen if Bernie won toward the end, but it's actually a case for why we should be excited about this moment and as socialists we should participate in the Bernie phenomenon. So we're here to talk about, it seems to me we're here to talk about the nature of social democracy in general and the perils and promise of a Bernie 2020 presidential campaign and potential victory in particular. First I want to start by laying out where I think that we all agree. I think everyone here agrees, at least all of us up here agree that, you know, that capitalism ex imposes extreme structural constraints on institutions that exist to advance the interests of workers. We agree on the dangers of co-optation, capitulation, and accommodation. And we agree on the need for extra parliamentary movements and mass action in order to both win ambitious reforms and to protect our gains from reversal or erosion. I think the area where we are likely to disagree is whether socialists, in addition to building mass movements, should throw our support behind Bernie Sanders' 2020 presidential run. The question before us is not whether he should run. That train has already left the station, and organized socialists were not in the conductor car to begin with, which is sort of a testament to our relative marginality. The question instead is how we as socialists can position ourselves vis-a-vis -vis the Bernie campaign and potential presidency in order to best take advantage of the openings for working class advancement and overcome potential obstacles thrown out by the capitalist class. So I think we all agree that it will take huge mass movements and major disruption from below to force the capitalists to concede to any of Bernie's major reforms, like the Green New Deal or Medicare for All, tuition for college, a minimum $15 minimum wage, and so on. The question then is, can we place ourselves in a better position to help promote such mass movements by supporting or abstaining from the Bernie campaign. 
Um, I, my co-panelist, Kate, has actually said in, in a recent interview that uh, organized support for any candidate running as a Democrat is simply too burdensome for, for socialist groups uh, and inevitably entails both drains and pressures on the primary task of organizing independent working class power. Uh, I've actually not found this to be true in reality, and my experience to the contrary probably informs my perspective on the main question at hand, which is probably why we've arrived at this disagreement. So instead, what I've found is that high-profile electoral contests that raise working-class people's expectations of society, that unite us against a common capitalist enemy, and that emphasize the importance of extra-parliamentary movements have actually been a major boon to efforts to organize independent working-class power. And I have a couple of examples for you. Um, the first one is uh, the, the teachers, strike leaders in West Virginia that I've spoken to who've told me that the Bernie 2016 campaign caused something major to shift for working people in their state, increasing their militancy and their confidence, and cohering a core of radicals to organize the actions that helped spark the teacher's strike wave. Uh, I did an interview with Jay O'Neill, one of the rank and file leaders of the strike, and he said, this is a quote from him, he said, for me personally and for other strike organizers, the 2016 election was a watershed moment. We thought we've just got to do something because we can't just sit by anymore. A lot of us Bernie Sanders supporters saw what happened with Clinton and ultimately with Trump, and we just snapped into action one way or the other. So Jay met Emily Comer in, in Bernie campaign organizing circles, and they both joined DSA. And in a DSA political education group, they began drawing up plans for teacher organizing. And they both went on to become key leaders in the West Virginia teachers' strike. Obviously, Bernie is not the sole factor here. I'm not even attempting to imply that it is. I'm just trying to draw it for you that there's not a mutual exclusivity here, right? Um, Bernie 2016 also flooded my DSA chapter, which is East Bay DSA, with fresh recruits who then set about doing all kinds of non-electoral work. I'm one of those 2016 recruits myself. Um, and I want to veer away from Bernie for a second, but hopefully demonstrate my point with even greater clarity. So my chapter engaged last fall in a campaign to elect Javanka Beckles, who is a Democratic Socialist. She ran on the Democratic Party ballot line for California State Assembly. Her use of the ballot line was, was strategic. It was crucial to her success in a crowded primary field in a heavily Democratic district. And in the general, Javanka's opponent was an establishment Democrat named Buffy Wicks, who nicknamed herself Buffy the Bernie Slayer when she was managing California's field operation, Hillary's field operation in California. Um, so Buffy, um, her, her, her campaign was actually also like, it was, it was uh, heavily bankrolled by the charter school industry, which, which East Bay DSA uh, ex exposed on a, on a website that we purchased and built called BuffyWix.Money. <laughs> so, with, uh, with political direction from DSA, Javanka's campaign emphasized corporate greed, capitalist exploitation, and working class power, and featured a radical redistributive platform. She openly identified as a democratic socialist and a member of DSA throughout. Our heavy involvement in Javanka's campaign was directly responsible for building our capacity this winter to stage an intensive solidarity effort when the Oakland teachers went on strike. East Bay DSA was able to bring a lot more to the table than a lot of the other socialist groups, which to their credit actually did a lot of great work despite their limited capacity. But we had more capacity. 
And that's because East Bay DSA had just been through a massive campaign that increased our energy, it swelled our ranks, introduced us to our class enemies who were in many cases the exact same individuals responsible for stacking the school board against teachers, connected us to working class coalition partners, taught us vital political organizing skills, increased our profile in the community, and generally forced us to get our house in order in a hundred small ways. So when Javanka lost narrowly, we took all of that energy and experience, and with it we did pre-strike canvases in Oakland's working class community, we helped organize solidarity schools so that parents and students wouldn't have to cross picket lines, we raised uh, nearly $200,000 to feed uh, children at those solidarity schools and helped organize the food distribution, we organized flying squadrons of our members to strengthen picket lines every morning of the strike at 6.30 a.m., we created an independent publication devoted to advancing a working class and socialist perspective on the strike, including live coverage and interviews, we contributed heavily to the public pressure campaign on the school district and a great deal more. So I was recently speaking to people in our chapter and I asked them how many had worked on the Javanka campaign and how many had worked on the strike support campaign and nearly all of the same hands shot up. And now Javanka's opponent is preparing to do what she was hired to do and oppose anti-charter legislation at the state level, right? And the Oakland Teachers Union is preparing to go on the offensive against her and they know exactly who to call the same people who last summer exposed this corporate Democrats charter school industry ties and stood alongside them every day of the strike, East Bay DSA. So from my personal experience, not all electoral campaigns that make use of the Democratic Party ballot line are mutually exclusive with independent working class organizing. Because that mutual exclusivity is not apparent to me, I don't discount the idea that a Bernie campaign or presidency will increase rather than decrease our ability to engage in other activities that raise the consciousness, militancy, and organization of the working class. So in fact, Bernie himself is uh, actively arguing to millions of people that the only way to actually make lasting change is to build and harness the power of working people outside the state. He exemplifies this approach with his campaign slogan that he's chosen this time around, Not Me, Us, and his emphasis in the early days of his 2020 campaign on the necessity of grassroots activism and mass movements. In Iowa, he put it really plainly uh, when he was explaining why he uses that slogan. He said, the truth is that the powers that be, they are so powerful, they have so much money, that no one person, not the best president in the world, can take them on alone. The only way we transform America is when millions of people together stand up and fight back. Bernie's popularity owes largely to his unwavering support of reforms that could be called social democratic, but that is a slippery term. In some contexts, social democracy refers to class collaborationism, such as when we talk about the decrepit social democratic parties of Europe that today not only relent to, but actually actively administer austerity and privatization. And they do this because they do not have an analysis that posits workers' interests as contrary to capitalist interests. They have ceased pushing for class victory and begun managing class compromise. One of their primary functions actually has been to intervene in situations characterized by heightened class consciousness and worker militancy and to intentionally lower working people's expectations, convincing them to demand less than what they otherwise might. But fighting for, winning, and implementing reforms that do not immediately dispense with capitalism is not synonymous with class collaborationism because not all contexts are the same. In situations of low class consciousness and worker militancy, social democratic demands can be enormously galvanizing. It's possible to advocate for these reforms like Medicare for all, tuition free college, a mandatory $15 minimum wage, a Green New Deal. 
In the spirit of class antagonism, of workers against capitalists, it's possible to use these demands to convince working people that they deserve more, not less, and that they must advance, not retreat. It is that sense of class antagonism and confrontation that animates the Bernie campaign, or more accurately, the Bernie phenomenon, which is a lot bigger than the campaign itself. So Bernie Sanders is running as a Democrat, even though he has been an independent politician for the vast majority of his career. And from what I can tell, he's doing that so that he can have the largest platform possible for his message, and so that he actually stands a chance at victory. And his calculation appears to be that the latter is actually vital to the former, that few people would take him or his politics so seriously if they thought that he couldn't win. In my opinion, socialists should not overlook the constraints that the Democratic Party places on anyone who doesn't stand firmly outside of it, nor should we advocate for the realignment of the Democratic Party. Ultimately, we need a party of and for the working class. But we're not strong enough right now to build that party in the United States. In order to get into that position of strength, we need a renaissance of class politics, and specifically a renewed sense of class antagonism and working class confidence. So our immediate task is not to approach anything that smacks of social democracy with an overriding skepticism and disavowal, which can lead to abstentionism, paralysis, and continued marginality. Our task is to jumpstart a moribund socialist movement and set working people in motion against the capitalist class. Bernie Sanders is helping do that right now. I believe that the Bernie campaign is a windfall for socialism and class politics whether or not he wins the primary or the general election. In my opinion, socialists should go all in, trying to make the campaign as big and successful as possible, and making it abundantly clear to anyone moved by Bernie's political vision that there is a year-round, indeed a lifelong movement that they can and should join. But now let's talk about what would happen if Bernie were to win. First, we can't be naive about the pressures that he would face in office. For one thing, Bernie is the product of a very odd political scenario. Uh, in, a, in a different, maybe more ideal scenario, one that we would perhaps sketch out ahead of time, right? And it would go according to our plans, which never happens, which sucks. Um, <laughs> and an openly socialist presidential candidacy would be the culmination of an intensive decades-long political project. The candidate would arise organically through the ranks of a dynamic and powerful and democratic organized left. The left would consist of, among other things, strong left-wing unions, innumerable community groups knitted into tight coalitions, and a mass political party with a democratic membership structure and a credible means of candidate discipline. But that is not how things have played out, unfortunately. <laughs> Instead, the socialist idea morphed in the late 20th century from a scary taboo into just a tacit impossibility, right? Unions were hollowed out and hamstrung, and the organized left was placed on the back foot. Without a unified mass movement to represent, Bernie kind of marched to the beat of his own drum for decades, during which time stagnating wages and rising living costs tested millions of people's patience with the status quo. The 2008 financial crisis, Occupy Wall Street and Black Lives Matter further eroded popular tolerance for business as usual, creating new openings for left-wing politics. And in a happy historical coincidence, Bernie Sanders happened to still be alive, to, to have stayed politically consistent, and to be personally willing to provide the electoral leadership that a movement getting back on its feet might need. One problem with this sequence of events is that there are very few serving politicians who are sympathetic to Bernie Sanders' politics, and even fewer who are also skilled at standing up to capitalists. He therefore can't rely on many allies within the state to move major parts of his agenda through the legislature of their own accord. 
the only way out of this unfavorable predicament is for a mass movement of ordinary people to exert its own pressure on politicians, rivaling the pressure exerted by capitalists. This can be accomplished in a variety of ways. You know, you can think of disruptive mass movements that create new moods in the electorate and threaten politicians' careers, or major political strikes that halt the normal functions of society and, and wring concessions from the political class that way. Mm -hmm. When Bernie says that he can't deliver the needed reforms by himself, that he needs help from millions of people who have no formal power, he's not just flattering us. He's insisting that extra parliamentary movements are the key to political success. So while the scenario leading up to a viable socialist presidential candidacy may not have played out exactly as socialists would have envisioned or hoped, it does have one distinct and kind of paradoxical benefit, which is that in order to make real change, Bernie will be forced to wield the office of the presidency in a very different way, using his platform to encourage rather than stifle mass action. We can't say for certain that he will consistently demonstrate this commitment. The pressures on him to abandon it will be immense, but it is his most viable path to success, and he does seem to recognize it right now. There is a real chance that these mass movements may not materialize with the uh, strength necessary to push through all of his proposed reforms. That's the main way that a Bernie Sanders presidency could go wrong, and it speaks to the need for socialists to attend to movement building during his tenure, and indeed well before it, including now. But we also need to talk about what can go right. There's also a chance that we can, for the first time in generations, build those movements and win major structural reforms capable of, at the very least, starting to reverse neoliberalism. It's worth the wager, as weak as we are. The worst that can happen is that we're back where we started a few years ago, which is a very weak and marginal left and a stultified labor movement. So my co-panelist, Kate, also warned in the same interview, you warned about the dangers of demoralization if things don't go well. But I don't think that threat is any graver than the continued demoralization of business as usual. When it comes to a potential Bernie presidency, socialists should be asking ourselves the following question. Would we rather have four to eight years of open conflict between the working class interests and the capitalist class interests at the highest levels of government or standard fare? Which one is more likely to be the catalyst for the mass working class movements that we need? If it's the former, then our task is to attempt to secure that outcome. And when people are radicalized by the fight that ensues, it's our task to provide them with the resources and support and avenues for further political development that they need to become lifelong socialists and class militants and leaders. I'll end by saying that the Bernie movement is our best shot at doing something real about climate change and saving the planet for future generations, and socialists could claim that victory. Bernie is also our best shot at Medicare for all, tuition-free college, a mandatory $15 minimum wage, and pro-labor legal reform, which will not only transform working people's imaginations of what's politically possible and introduce solidaristic values into our competitive capitalist culture, but will put millions of people in a better position to fight for more down the line. As that fight unfolds, the likelihood that our institutions will be successfully corrupted increases. Class consciousness is not enough. Workers must also have strong institutions through which they can effectively wage class struggle or else leaders are isolated from one another, spontaneous episodes of struggle lose their cumulative power, and lessons learned are quickly forgotten, and gains made are quickly eroded. The most successful institutional formations that the socialist movement has hit upon so far are the union and the party. That is, workers' institutions dedicated to fighting the capitalists in the workplace and those dedicated to fighting the capitalists in the state. 
The problem of social democracy, and it's a big problem not to be underestimated, arises when these institutions become strong enough to start winning real concessions in both the workplace and the, and the state, but not strong enough to finish the job or eliminate the capitalist mode of production and private property ownership altogether. In this precarious arrangement, these institutions become vulnerable to co-optation or outright capture by our ad adversaries in the capitalist class. So the reasons for this are primarily structural. For one, as long as capitalists still exist, they will still exploit workers and accumulate wealth, and they will use that wealth to build political power, which they will wield to undermine workers' interests in the state. For another, capitalist markets have an automatic retaliation mechanism built into them. Individual capitalists watching out for their bottom line have a tendency to withdraw from regions or sectors where workers hold too much power, punishing workers' advancement with economic disinvestment, which can erode popular support for whichever actor initiated the reforms to begin with. And finally, parties and unions are always in danger of bureaucratization. Any big organization will have a tendency to, de to develop a leadership layer that wants to self-replicate, a desire that leads them toward collaboration rather than confrontation with capitalists, since confrontation creates uncertainty and uncertainty undermines continuity. So these dangers are extremely real, but nonetheless, we must engage in class struggle within the workplace and the state, and we must build institutions that allow us to do so effectively. And this means that there's no one weird trick to circumventing the contradictions of social democracy, unfortunately. Our best hope is to endow our institutions with a strong socialist character and orientation, knowing full well that the capitalist class will attempt to corrupt them, to take them from us, and transform them into tools for class compromise and betrayal. Figuring out how to prevent and contend with that betrayal is part of class struggle. At some point, these contradictions will be our most pressing concerns. Until then, our task is to persuade, inspire, and organize. And what better way to do that than by picking a big, ugly fight with capitalist elites in view of hundreds of millions of people? The work doesn't end there, but it's an auspicious beginning. It is very confusing that we have a mic and the mic does yeah. not <laughs> Okay, but we're going to all try to do, use our teacher voices here um, and project as much as possible. Um, so I'm going to give a talk that is uh, the, the subhead for it is what would happen if Bernie won. But uh, looking at South Africa, social democracy and the fight there for healthcare reform. So I'm going to let you guys know I'm sorry that I'm not going to be able to respond point by point to Megan's really, really excellent and uh, on point uh, discussion of Bernie. I'm going to talk about Bernie at the end, so just hold your hold your horses. Um, but I do want to preface this a little bit by saying um, we partly agree, I think, about where we agree, but I also disagree about where we agree. Okay. And I want to I want to highlight that a little bit at the beginning because we certainly do agree about the, the danger of co-optation, the danger of capture, and and so forth. Um, and you know, obviously, about the importance of worker struggle, about the importance of mass socialist action. And in fact, I think I might agree with you a little bit more than you think about um, about abstentionism versus elections. I, I do not think that uh, socialists should never engage in electoral strategies and so forth. Um, so, 
Okay, so just laying that out there, but I would add in, in, in addition to all our seas, of, our, our terrible seas of social democracy, I would also add in repression. And I think that the South Africa case is gonna bring that a little bit to the fore. Finally, I would just say, I think a major point of disagreement um, between us is about the time horizon on which the question of independence becomes important, right? About the time horizon in which social democratic pol uh, politics can present limitations, not just to reform, but in fact to the full development of uh, working class struggle, of the development of, of class demands, of class-wide demands out of that struggle. So the other last thing I would say that I think we disagree on and that I hope my ethnographic interlude illustrates um, is uh, that I think we disagree about the relationship between um, mass action, disruptive action, strikes, direct action, uh, and reform and elections, okay? Because I think uh, there's a sort of order of operations in, in your piece, and my piece is gonna um, present a slightly different order of operations, so um, hopefully that becomes clear. Um, I did a very HM thing, and I, I apologize for that, but I'm, I'm gonna do it anyway. Um, which is, I promised in the in the intro that I would I was going to draw on Rosa Luxemburg, and I know if I don't say don't have some Rosa Luxemburg here, y'all will all leave ter terribly terribly sad. So I'm gonna I'm gonna read, uh, very briefly, quickly, just a couple little uh, thoughts from her um, before I start. So the first um, is is Rosa on this question of of. Uh, the working class, right, and, kind, and special oppression, mm, so cute. Um, the current mass struggle for women's political rights is only an expression of part of the proletariat's general struggle for liberation. In this lies its strength and its future, because the female proletariat, general, equal, direct suffrage for women, would immensely advance and intensify the proletarian class struggle. This is why bourgeois society abhors and fears women's suffrage, um, and this is why we'll want to achieve it. Fighting for women's suffrage will also hasten the coming of the hour, of course, when the present society falls into ruin under the hammer strokes of the revolutionary proletariat. Okay, so that's just to say um, something about this idea between uh, parts of the working class, specific kinds of oppression, right, and the general universal uh, class struggle. The second thing, um, the little second Rosa moment, is we know that the present state is it is not society representing the rising working class. It is itself the representative capitalist society. It's a class state. Therefore, its reform measures are not an application of social control, that is, the control of society working freely for its own labor process. They are forms of control applied by the class organization of capital to the production of capital. The so-called social reforms are enacted in the interests of capital. Yes, Bernstein and Schmidt are, see at present only feeble beginnings of this control, and they hope to see a long succession of reforms in the future, all favoring the working class, but this is a mistake similar to the, to the belief in the unlimited development of the trade union movement. So that also brings up my last little point. I was really glad you brought up the bureaucracy at the end of the labor bureaucracy at the end of your piece, because um, in some ways that's where my piece is gonna start up. So I wanna think about what kind of role the labor bureaucracy is playing, right? in relationship to the party, right? And in relationship to this question of not only reform, right? Not only co-optation, but also repression, okay? So, what would happen with, if Bernie won is the provocation of the panel? Though I think all of us here really are also interested in discussing socialist strategy, reform and revolution, even if we allow for the upsetting possibility that Bernie might not in fact win. Sorry. Um, 
my main work uh, uh, as, a, as an anthropologist has been a kind of long-term investigation into uh, the crisis of social reproduction in post-apartheid South Africa. I spent uh, a lot of time between 2008 and 2012 um, there. Uh, so that's where I'm drawing some of this, this from. I think South Africa holds two kinds of lessons for us in the United States, although I clearly recognize that these are very different countries in a lot of ways. I'm not, I'm not uh, suggesting that they're identical, um, and of course they exist in a relationship to each other, so okay, Marxist nerds, you can all tell me that at the end, but I know that. Um, but I think it does hold two relevant lessons for us. Most immediately, um, the strikes in the healthcare sector in South Africa made nationwide healthcare reform a reality there. And it offers lessons uh, to us for the movement for healthcare reform in the United States, both about where those demands come from and what it takes to, in fact, to, to win them. The second, though, is that South Africa offers some insights into the if aspect of the titular question. South Africa has been governed by the tripartite alliance since the last gasp of apartheid in 1994, a, a balancing act right between the African National Congress, the uh, Kasachi, the, the Congress of South African Trade Unions, and the South African Communist Party. Right. So, um, in this sense, it's a very classically kind of social democratic formation, and it's worth you know. Not to belabor the point, but it'd be like if DSA, um, you know, our independent mass socialist party, and um, some formation of trade unions. Interesting question: What that would be? You know, one. Okay, so that would that would be awesome. Elected on the wave of the liberation struggle to end apartheid, on the momentum of mass workers' action strikes, student and social struggle. That formation has been considered by a lot of people to be so, a, a social democratic one. We can debate that. Um, and it came to power on the promise of implementing the Freedom Charter, a program that was that prescribed full democratic reform, significant redistribution, and positive social rights to housing, employment, work, and land reform. So in that sense, there's a way in which South Africa offers us a possible set of potentials, I think actually a very hopeful one for what we might expect from, a, from a, our best case kind of Bernie uh, scenario and, and his program, right, for free education, healthcare, and, and so forth, Green New Deal. Um, so I expect a lot of us in this room and on this panel agree that we should not, that socialists should not only engage directly in the struggle for reform, or that the struggle for reform requires an active working class to seek gains, um, but the question is really how best do we engage and what kinds of struggles, programs and organizations, programs, organizations and actions are necessary to do that job. So that's, here we go, South Africa. The victory of South African liberation in defeating apartheid and racial segregation is considered by a lot of scholars, uh, Marxist ones in particular, to have been actually uh, a moment of concession um, by the capitalist class to this mass uh, working class activity, but also black consciousness, widespread revolutionary and socialist aspiration, right? Like most of these, many, many, many of these people, like you could be singing in a 10,000 person march, you know, this is why I'm a communist, this is why I'm a socialist, and everybody would be singing that, right? Um, and of the agreement to transition between uh, the apartheid regime and the ANC-led alliance, um, a lot of the a lot of the rank and file and activists uh, from that period see it as a kind of moment of of betrayal that traded formal political power for the abandonment of substantive redistribution. Also up for debate, of course. Whether revolution was then on the cards or not, you know, is another thing I'm not going to take a position on. But um, it's clear that the achievement of universal suffrage and free movement in South Africa did not immediately translate over time into the impl implementation of meaningful economic reforms. In fact, it's frequently noted that uh, the free South African economy became more unequal in this period, um, still described, right, 20, you know, almost 30 years in as a transition to full democratic participation. 
That's like a joke now, right? If you say transition in South Africa. But it must be affirmed that this de jure equality was nonetheless a victory uh, for the working class in a major battle of a much longer war, and one which could not have been achieved without um, the, the social and psychological transformations of that class struggle that I just described, or without, say, the power of uh, power militancy of Durban, Durban strikes or minor militancy, without mass student uprising, and without the tight, social, the tight organization of social movements and movements of the unemployed. It was a, it was a, everybody out type of thing, right? Um, in part, it must be said that this deferred dream came in the context of a really tragic historical coincidence. Um, because as liberation, liberation coincided with South Africa becoming a global epicenter of the AIDS crisis. Um, HIV, AIDS, and President Thabo and Becky's hideous denialism intensified the effects of global neoliberal realignment on South Africa, and uh, along with Mbeki's own sort of intensely neoliberal uh, orientation, it precipitated an, a, a crisis of social reproduction there that was in some ways in advance of the one that's being experienced uh, in the rest of the world um, subsequently. Something that appeared in my research uh, was uh, a lot of people asking, why did that crisis um, in the first 20 years of transition not produce a political crisis in South Africa? This is, there's a book by that title uh, by Alex DeWalt, right? Why is there no political crisis? Yet the answer is that it did. It ultimately did produce a political crisis. And that is, that's, it's still doing so. That's what's happening in South Africa right now. Um, while the treatment action campaign that some of you guys might have heard of famously and photogenically mobilized a popular movement for treatment access and to combat stigma, um, and the global health community roundly condemned Tabo Mbeki, little movement was seen towards securing a formal commitment from government to provide treatment, let alone toward the investment and infrastructure needed to deliver it to the nearly one in four HIV positive working AIDS adults in South Africa. Um, not until that is, nurses began striking the public healthcare sector first in Durban and Johannesburg in 2008 um, over wages and staffing ratios. Okay, so remember, treatment was not one of their demands. Um, though, oh, I just said that. Anyway, nurses emphasized patient care and the dire needs of their patients as justifications for the strike, exposing the impact of the AIDS crisis on hospitals, also pressurized by austerity and de-skilling, effectively breaking through stigma in a way that even Mandela's famous photo op and a treatment action campaign HIV positive t-shirt or, or tax spokesman Zaki Atzmat's brave and compelling drug strike had not yet been able to do or hadn't been able to do by itself, right? The power of nurses to effectively win a class-wide demand and reform that could ameliorate most, the most intense edge of South Africa's crisis of social reproduction had ripple effects. The rollout of ARVs actually began under Tabo Mbeki, who fired his famously intransigent denialist health minister, Mantu Shabalaz Mang, replacing her with a minister who supported treatment quietly. Nevertheless, organi uh, organized nurses led the move to push, him, to push uh, um, Mbeki out of leadership of the ANC and thus the presidency in, in favor of Jacob Zuma, their preferred candidate and somebody who at that point represented the left wing of the ANC and a, and a kind of hope for realignment within the, the party. Um, important to note for the purpose of this discussion, that reform was won before the power of organized workers could make itself known in the election process and without this kind of declaration of uh, a list of social democratic demands kind of pulled from the air. And in fact, that list of social democratic demands exists in South Africa. Everybody knows what it is. If you say the Freedom Charter, everybody knows what that is, right? Um, the nurses' success kicked off a wave of increasingly large and militant open-ended strikes over four years 
first in the public sector and then as a whole spreading to the private sector, including transportation, mining, and agriculture. I'll also just say there was an internal dynamic in the unions that was expressed here, which was initially, um, you know, South African unions are very, uh, in some ways, very top down, but their, their militancy is uh, underwritten by a, a really um, militant network of shop stewards in most of these unions. Um, and so there's, there was also an internal increasing uh, conflict between the bureaucracy of various unions and the organized shop stewards. Um, when strikes hit the private sector, however, the repressive capacity of the ruling Social Democratic Alliance, oh, poop, um, there we go, came into clear focus following a series of escalating incidents of violent crackdown, first against the movement of shack dwellers, Abasale Basim Jondolo, in Durban, and one in which Zuma turned rubber bullets and water cannons on striking public sector workers, um, who, who in theory were represented in his governing alliance by Kasatu and who had made up a crucial part of his factional base during his ascendancy. The increasing tension between rank and file workers and, workers and stewards and the union and party bureaucrats of the ruling alliance was made stark when platinum miners working for lawnmen launched a wildcat against the company, but also in opposition to Kasatu affiliated National Union of Mine Workers. Um, after weeks of altercations between uh, that union's enforcers and the miners themselves. This came to a horrific climax that many of you will know about um, when, under orders from sort of, from Sio Ramaphosa, who had been the struggle era president of the National Union of Mine Workers, turned, at, who had become since a lawman board member, um, Ambush, the police uh, ambushed and surrounded strikers who, had, who were armed only with sticks, basically, um, and, and, and a whole lot of courage. Um, 78 miners were shot, mostly in the back, and 34 of them were killed. That massacre took place on the 25th anniversary of a 300,000 member miner strike, understood to have played a crucial role in the momentum of the anti-apartheid struggle. That strike, of course, was led by Ramaphosa in his former life as president of the National Union of Mine Workers. In an uncanny historical irony, 78 was also the number of miners arrested by the apartheid police that day, purportedly for instigating violence. It would be hard to invent a parable more pointed. The apartheid police arrested 78 miners. Police and the employee of the ANC government shot 78 miners. At the time, uh, that is 1987, uh, Botha made himself explicit that crushing that, that strike, the 1987 strike, would have threatened his extremely then tenuous legitimacy. That's why he didn't do it. Ramaphosa seemed to have no such concern, and for good reason. He's now the elected president of South Africa, elected despite his role in Marikana, and with his candidacy widely regarded as a further intensification of the power of the left wing of the ANC, right? And a further, deeper representation of workers in the, the, the party of the ANC. And including the, the sense that this has permanently dis displaced Mbeki's centrist neoliberal faction. But it's not clear that he can rest easy for very long. Since Marikana, a series of splits have taken place in the ANC and Kasatu, and new parties have emerged flanking the ANC to the left, debatably depending on which ones you're talking about, including a new revolutionary formation based and rooted on a new independent trade union federation. Um, and it's important to note that this, this particular break, right, which started in Kasatu and then spread to the ANC, um, doesn't map easily or directly onto the prior consolidation of working class power in the left wing faction of the ANC. Um, in fact, that first helped elect Zuma and then Ramaphosa. In fact, the split means that the, the most militant sections of public sector and private sector workers remain divided from each other in their electoral expression. Okay, so I think it's important for socialists to think about what it means to try to build a party that represents the working class. 
as a whole. Okay. I mean, this is my last paragraph, I swear. Um, in some sense, I think this, you know, these particularities uh, uh, meant that South Africa sort of ended up ahead of us in a way that we could learn from. Because, of course, uh, the, the proximity historically to the, the struggle against apartheid meant that the expectations of the working class were already very high. Right? People expected to get housing. People expected to uh, get some redistribution and land reform. Um, but we're starting to see a similar process unfold. Right? Uh, strikes in the public sector here led by women, um, first developing also in a geographic center of social de devastation in West Virginia. We've seen partial victories already that include class-wide demands premised on, premised on the unified interests of teachers, their students, and their communities. Losses, losses in a single battle, even ones a severe massacre of strikers, can't always slow the spread of militant strike action across states and sectors. But it's hard to see, in the South Afri African case, what benefit, in terms of measurable reforms, has been, has, has been of a successful realignment of the ruling party towards its left wing. Right? There haven't been uh, reforms subsequent right, to the election of these supposedly left wing uh, candidates. In the case of South Africa, it's hard to imagine any politician other than Ramaphosa whose reputation could survive such bald brutality on behalf of the boss. On the other hand, in both the USA and South Africa, it's clear that important demands can and have already been won directly as a result of strikes. Last year, a number of liberal and socialist commentators expressed hope that the teacher strike in so, uh, wave in so-called red states, we can talk about that too, could precipitate a blue wave of Democratic Party and specifically progressive candidate victories across that sort of border state region, a hope that hasn't yet uh, materialized, although uh, it's worth noting that teacher canvassing in West, West Virginia made a really big difference in a recent anti-abortion referendum, which didn't work out, but the, the difference between the polls and the reality was, was pretty noticeable. Um, on the social democratic left, one iteration of this sort of hope centers on spreading Bernie's ballot strategy toward the goal of winning substantial support among the labor bureaucracy and union members for a Bernie yes, but also for the, build, the development of a party within a party that might eventually be able to break, some people say dirty break, toward the independence of a party representing the working class um, through some, from some section or all of the organized labor movement. Both the, the trajectory of South African strikes and the shape of the subsequent break with the ANC should make us question some of the underlying assumptions of this strategy. I think uh, in particular, right, the way in which the labor bureaucracy uh, does or does not right, represent the demands, the militancy, um, even the strikes right, that we're seeing take place here and as well as in South Africa. And I'm going to leave things uh, by raising some of the questions I think we should reflect on while conveniently for me not answering all of them. Um, the first is, uh, where do class demands come from? How do we get class demands? Okay. Um, what kind of evidence do we have that winning left elections helps win demands rather than ratify demands that have already been won? Um, what do you do and how do we think about the idea of your boss being in your independent working class party or your, uh, uh, the party that's supposed to stand for workers? And what do we think about um, different unions right, with different kinds of internal characters represented uh, in such a party formation by their uh, labor officialdom? Um, I think we need to think about uh, this, this whole question of universal demands. Um, that's something I hope that people will raise because I would like to talk about it and didn't get to write it in the paper. Um, and I think last but not least, we should think about how is it possible to hold politicians accountable, accountable and weighing that against the increased legitimacy for reaction against uh, a, an organized working class. And by that, I mean in the South African case, right? we had these mass strikes of public sector workers who were clearly identified as the power behind the, electorate, the, the leaders that they had elected, 
right? And there are very, there's a lot of democratic mechanisms, um, more so, right, in, in, in the ANC and in Kasatu and so forth, than there certainly are within the Democratic Party. And the strikes themselves were not able to hold these politicians accountable. So what, what does that kind of look like, right, if, uh, when we talk about accountability? It's something that gets talked about a lot, but I don't think is very well theorized in the discussion we're having uh, broadly on the left. I don't mean to cast aspersions on any of my colleagues here. Yeah. So thank you to Megan and Kate and Cami and Levi and to all of you for being here. There are some notable absences, in particular the late Joanne Landy, who I'm sure would have thrown herself into this moment wholeheartedly. For purposes of time, I won't cite each of my sources, so I'd like to acknowledge just a, a few from the outset including Robert Brenner, Guglielmo Garcetti, Pia Rio-Francos, Kitty Fox-Hodas, Michael Schwartz, and Eric Van de Venter in the room right here, as well as comrades with whom I've had discussions over the years, including Mary Rilke, also in the room, Irene Zafenmu, and Sofia Arias, who actually planted the seed for this panel. Perhaps most important is the constant check put on my thinking by struggles against economic and political autocracy around the world. In fact, what's made me take seriously the question of social democracy in the first place is the set of political experiences I've had in Greece since especially 2012, when upon Syriza's <coughs> rapid emergence, I moved to Athens, inspired by the mass mobilizations that had produced this electoral upsurge. What I arrived to, of course, was the start of a period of demobilization, which has since been discussed quite thoroughly, and so I won't get into that here. What I will talk about is what I came to identify as the key fault line between reform and rupture, and that's the question of European economic integration. The cities and leadership, as it prepared to take power, evaded this question, spending more of its time assuring elites that it was aiming for some modest debt reduction than fostering the kind of militancy that would have been needed to make even that happen. And those sections of the left, both within and outside Syriza, tried bringing this question to the fore. They drastically fell short of doing so, partly because of sectarianism, partly due to the thinness of their base, but more fundamentally because they lacked the mechanisms for linking that analysis around with concerns around survival and struggle. That is, for linking programmatic demands with a strategic horizon. And so in my view, that's what we need to be doing from now, from before 2020, which is why I hope we continue to have these sorts of discussions. Now, to be clear, here in the US, we don't find ourselves in the immensely tight position that Syriza did. Pushing for reforms isn't going to trigger some threat of having our liquidity support cut off. <laughs> the question, rather, is how to prevent potential partial victories from leading to the incorporation of class struggle rather than to its intensification. And here's where I want to insert the problem of global economic integration. That is, how do we intensify international class struggle within a framework of national growth models? Now, I know at this point you might say, whoa, 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 we haven't even gotten to the class struggle. We're way too many steps ahead. And forgive me, I've been through cities. I am going to go a few steps ahead. And I do think that it is an especially pressing question for those of us operating in the heart of the hegemon in a period of ever-deepening economic integration. 
In order to answer this question, I'll lay out a historical analysis of class compromise in the world of market economy. And my argument is fivefold. First, and quite simply, there is a tendency in capitalism toward global integration. Second, that, it, that tendency dictates how class conflict gets translated into compromise. Mm -hmm. Third, the terms of the compromise reached by the mid-20th century were, at the economic level, a global integration powered by industrial investment in the core, and in particular in the US, and at the political level, party and union mechanisms for bureaucratizing class struggle and confining <coughs> it within those terms. Fourth, it is those very terms that ended up undoing the compromise. And fifth, and this is probably the more novel point that I'm introducing, amid that undoing, the continued lurch to economic integration has made it unlikely that a compromise today would be accompanied by significant industrial investment in the US. And even if it were, it would be even more tenuous than the previous compromise. This time around, a non-reformist internationalism is both more feasible and more necessary. Mm -hmm. This final point should become more clear as I proceed with the argument. So point number one, the tendency toward integration. The main idea is that hegemons historically have been industrially productive economies that, after themselves benefiting from restrictions on trade and capital flows, have sought to relax those constraints. Britain occupied this position up until the 20th century, while the US <coughs> maintained a degree of protectionism in order to incubate its industrial sector, which in turn bought up a banking sector that, relative to its size, was quite inward. Coming out of World War I, Britain began experiencing balance of payments deficits after having taken out war loans from the US. So between outpacing British industry and holding a balance of payment surplus, the US became the key competitor against other late industrializers, chiefly Germany. It's instructive, actually, to juxtapose their interwar trajectories because it illuminates the connection between domestic class conflict and constraints, and that's going to be points two and three. I'll start with Germany, which was plagued both by the death burden accompanying national defeat as well as by the spasms of defeated revolution and attempts at working class incorporation led by the Social Democrats. There was an export-oriented fraction of German capital, which had made some inroads into rationalizing production and recovering partial profitability, but there was a major barrier to the formation of a free trade coalition, and this was the alliance between domestically-oriented heavy industry and skilled labor. When the Depression hit, not even that alliance could hold within the parameters of liberal democracy. The solution of the Third Reich was therefore a protectionism that relied on territorial expansion. This of course failed, though if we fast forward a few decades, we might notice <laughs> that what Germany could have went through conflicts then, it eventually won through market integration and ultimately the creation of a currency bloc. But we'll get to that in a bit. I just had to. <laughs> Looking over to the other side of interwar competition, American state managers also contended with a protectionist faction, which had dominated their party system since the late 19th century. Textile, steel, and coal were at the heart of it, but as noted, investment and commercial banks were also, at this point, domestically oriented. World War I changed that. It expanded industrial capacity and pushed European countries to run export surpluses in order to pay off their war debts. So American banks now had an interest in lending abroad. After the crash, a section of industry also wanted to free capital flows so as to expand the money supply and reflate the economy. This was facilitated by the National Industrial Recovery Act, and revived industries now sought to grow and expand internationally as well. 
But the decisive factor was the strike wave of the second half of that decade, mm -hmm. which prompted bosses, especially in capital-intensive, internationally-oriented industries, to settle quickly in order to resume production. Roosevelt now had a specter to wield in prioritizing a coalition of banks, multinationals, and their workers. Class compromise, therefore, attached industrial investment to a free trade commitment. Not only did this compel the expulsion of militants from the workers' movement, mm -hmm. but it locked the movement into an international economic order that ultimately saw a falling rate of profits, offshoring of jobs, and an assault on the movement itself. That's point number four. So I'll parse that out now. Coming out of World War II with an even bigger trade surplus, the US sought to rescue and create viable trading partners out of the defeated German and Japanese economies. To accomplish this, the US assisted in the suppression of left-wing insurgencies, invested in infrastructure, facilitated business networks that stretched past Germany and Japan to include France, Italy, Korea, Taiwan. And as these economies exhausted their reserves, pumped more dollars into them. This outflow of capital, combined with intensifying competition, had two consequences. It reduced US control over declining interest rates, and it hit the profits of US manufacturers who were competing without the advantage that later developers had in adopting newer technologies. To address this twofold problem, the US state took two of the most defining actions of the 1970s. At the start of the decade, it switched to floating exchange rates, and then toward the end of it, once the profits crisis translated into a cycle of divestment and inflation, it jacked up the interest rates. An overvalued dollar, however, essentially served as a devaluation for foreign manufacturers. In other words, the US government saved the dollar at the expense of its own industry. Mm -hmm. And what else could it have done? What good would a trade-oriented industry do without trade? More specifically, I like that you found that funny. <laughs> what the Volcker shock induced was a shakeout of inefficient producers and later concentration of capital among those who had successfully hung on. So now we're getting to up to speed to our current times. To restore their profitability, these agglomerates did several things. They parked their assets and financial activities, generally a more consistent source of income than productive activities. They deepened their multinational orientation, and of course, domestically, they attacked labor standards and organizations of the stuff that we're more familiar with. The net result was a production process that by now has become geographically dispersed and flexible. In this new model, buyers drive the value chain. That is, large multinational firms headquartered mostly in the global north dictate the prices at which suppliers in the south sell them intermediates. And so for the latest generation of developers, the model has shifted from what was called import substitution to an mm -hmm. export orientation, in which the goal is to move up through the value chain. Mm -hmm. At this point, however, integration has proceeded <coughs> with a still rather strict division of labor. Chinese firms, for instance, aren't producing commercial aircrafts, and they're not even producing cars for the global market. Mm -hmm. It's mostly either low-value-added goods for their domestic market or intermediates for multinationals. And that's actually the result of a stunted industrial policy that was a condition for entering the WTO in the 1990s. In the aggregate, the financialization of firms and globalization of value chains has made business cycles acutely sensitive to credit crunches and to the volume of world trade. This is why the financial crisis of 2008 spread so quickly and so deeply into other sectors. In short, 
If there's lower demand for final goods from Japan, then there's lower demands for intermediate goods exported from other parts of East Asia, or for that matter, commodities from South America or from Africa. And it's been 10 years since the crisis, and trade continues to be stagnant, which now brings us back to the main players calling the shots, our two hegemons from before, Germany and the US. Germany has been limiting world demand through its management of the Eurozone crisis, which has entailed driving down current account deficits in the periphery without adjusting its current account surpluses. Elites have maintained these surpluses by exporting capital to the rest of the world such that the German savings rate considerably exceeds its domestic investment. Now, why are elites doing this? Elsewhere, I've argued that amid also the general instability of a Brexitable landscape, German elites fear emboldening left-wing forces not only in the periphery, but moreover at home. Price stability, which is at the core of their growth model, <coughs> has been useful not just for maintaining export competitiveness, but perhaps just as crucially for mitigating labor militancy. Why tamper with this arrangement that has weathered other crises? It's preferable to have German workers turn to the right which tells them to blame immigrants and peripherals and not a growth model dependent on austerity, then to attempt a structural tinkering that might get those workers questioning that model. Mm -hmm. And that's, well, something for the German left to figure out. Probably more fruitful than affirming calls for border restrictions. Mm -hmm. <laughs> on our end, beyond getting Bernie on board with open borders, we have some options to weigh with respect to the relationship between reform and integration. And since we've talked about healthcare a little bit, I want to look at the Green New Deal, which at its strongest could be an industrial policy of sorts. This is the final point of my argument, and I want to preface it by anticipating objections again that this is too deterministic of an approach, that there are so many conjunctural factors until the Grand Deal that we can't yet account for, and Sure enough, in my organizing, I should say I absolutely embraced tactical flexibility, perhaps. You know, even more, I was a Bernie bro. I'm <laughs> very happy that Rosanna, you know, is doing well in Chicago and all of that. I'm happy for Ilhan AOC. But what I hope to have shown so far is that any strategy with a national component is going to run up against the limits of a world market. Mm -hmm. And again, if there's a lesson to take from Syriza, isn't it to have a plan B and perhaps a plan C? So let me lay out the plans as I see them. In this case, plan A, as in the CETA example, is the weakest version of the Green New Deal. And that's priming the pump for wind, solar, and hydro energy sources, smart grids, renewable electricity, transit, weatherized buildings, and so on. The assumption here is that the problem with the economy is stagnant consumption and demand. And if people want to debate modern monetary theory in the discussion, we can do that. Since I don't have too much time, I'll assume that many of you here would agree that the problem is with investments and profitability. Plan B is thus about shifting investments to socially useful activities. There are actually two versions of this in my view, a plan B and a plan B plus. The first is the one that's had more discussion around it, and that's a shift in assets within the existing industrial structure as we have it today in the US. Mm -hmm. So we've got a ton of less carbon intensive activities that are in dire need of investment, like public hospitals and schools, public housing, transit, a proper social democracy. Most of us agree that likely we'll need education and health and transit workers to anchor the strategy, and I'm glad that we've been talking about the teachers. So in the abstract, there's a beauty to that vision for anyone who's grown up in this neoliberal hellhole. Here's the rub. 
If we can win Medicare for all, free college and the other goods, though I think actually real estate is a little trickier because that would mean going against the interests of homeowners as well and that then would become an electoral calculus. In any case, if we put ceilings on the prices that have been skyrocketing in these sectors, firms might need to shift their assets to the productive sector. At this point, something like 40% of their investments of companies that aren't financial companies aren't financial activities alone. Well, the default fix, if not pushed otherwise, would be to drive down costs in the sphere of production, mostly outside the US, and hence to increase the rate of exploitation in developing economies. It'd be basically social democracy in one country and then letting the world market continue to do its work, which already doesn't sound so great. Now, what if workers in those countries protest wages and their governments repress them, as already is the case in China and elsewhere? What is our role then? How do we build real solidarity under an administration that likely would see an electoral trade-off between redistribution at home and exploitation abroad? Hence, Plan B+, which would see some industrial reinvestment in the US. Theoretically, we could nationalize the railroad, build up train and wind turbine production capacity. As some of our comrades in the UW say, retool the auto plants instead of letting GM continue to outsource production, which really is just the writing on the wall. Well, here's where we want run into our own price stability problem. It's especially in a sector like auto where excess capacity has meant a constant drive toward cost reduction. So you might say, why don't we just give up on GM? Maybe what's good for GM isn't good for, well, maybe that or what's good for <laughs> the American working class. That raises the question of strategic sectors and what we really mean by that at this point. The reason Flint remains etched into our historical memory of class struggle is because it brought together several factors. Capital concentration, geographic concentration, choke points, associational capacities, and thank you, all the uh, shop floor power that mm -hmm. comes as a result of that. This is why I've been harping on global economic integration and took you through that little whirlwind. The loss of geographic concentration has allowed employers to build more redundancy into their production networks. It has severed workers' associational capacities and has fundamentally eroded shop floor power. Now, the Miquelidora workers that went on strike in the Mexican auto parts sector earlier this year did have some of that power because of that concentration along the border. But what we, do we do with the rest of the supply chain as it continues to be configured? Well, that's plan C a commitment to understanding real sources of disruption and building up our capacity to activate them. It means making it a priority to facilitate not just skills transfers, but political training between those auto parts workers in Mexico and whoever is bringing the cars into the US at this point. Between retail logistics workers in Chile who have built militant unions and their counterparts who are trying to take on Amazon in Minneapolis. Between Volkswagen workers in Germany and Poland and the US, if the UAW manages to organize Chattanooga this time around. <laughs> Between Chinese electronics factory workers and US semiconductor factory workers. In the way that dock workers, domestic workers, sex workers meet internationally yeah. through fundamentally grassroots driven channels. What I'm arguing for is for Plan C to have priority over Plan B in our strategic horizon. Mm -hmm. So the task, I think, is to understand as we walk the road with our tactical flexibility, which I'm on board with, the extent to which these two are compatible 
and to think very carefully about the incompatibilities and which, if any, we're going to tolerate. This time around, capitalism is giving workers a chance of uniting more substantively. We can and should make that a central plank of our vision. Thank you. Thank you.